God is wise. We've been going through the essential attributes of who God is. You could say the, the by definition attributes. By that we mean in order to be God, there are certain characteristics God would have to have. If he didn't have those characteristics, he would be something, but he wouldn't be God. And we went through the omnipotence of God, which means he is all-powerful. We went through the omnipresence of God. That was last week, that God is everywhere. And tonight, we are going to look at the omniscience of God, which is the same word family as the others. Omni, which means all, and science, which means knowledge. All knowledge. God is all-knowing. Put it in very simple terms. God knows everything. Mom, how did you know I did that? Mom goes, I know everything. No, only God knows everything. (laughs) God is omniscient. If you were, we use the example of music. If you were mixing a recording and you had one channel was the guitars, one was the drums, one was the bass, and so on, what you never want to do is max them all out. Because if you do that, then it's not going to sound right. It's going to be way too loud. It's not going to be blended properly. But let's use that as an example. If we're talking about God, or any person for that matter, God is a person, and you've got these sliders, and one of them is power, and one of them is knowledge, and one of them is ability to be in locations, and one of them is goodness. Gods are all maxed out. (laughs) All of them. And that includes his knowledge. And this only makes sense. This is why we call it an essential attribute of God. Because if God is... That's his name. God is the fundamental reality. He is all that there was, and everything else that exists came from him. If he created everything, then God knows about everything. There's nothing God didn't make, so there's nothing he doesn't know about. There's no secrets from God. The Bible takes this for granted, and it does so in a way that it can be sarcastic. In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14, It says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord as his counselor? Who taught him? With whom did he take counsel and was instructed and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? It's sarcasm. It's irony, right? Nobody taught God. God already knows everything. That's the whole point. God doesn't have a teacher. He doesn't have a tutor. God did not have to go off to school for a while and get his degree. God knows everything. And it emphasizes in that same chapter how little our knowledge is. Isaiah 40, 21, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Again, there's a little humor and sarcasm there. It's like, well, you know everything, right? I mean, you've been around since the world was created, right? So surely you know everything. We believe that God is omniscient. That same chapter again, Isaiah 40, 28, His understanding is unsearchable. You could not find everything that God knows and print it out or load it onto the cloud somewhere. It's unsearchable. And we're going to look at four areas of knowledge that God has tonight. Four areas of knowledge that God has completely. And the first one is factual knowledge. On a basic level, this means God knows all facts and all information. There is no bit of data that has escaped his understanding. It's not one little thing that God does not know. And that covers everything from chemistry and biology to art and to music, the profound things, the trivial things. God could quote you every play from Shakespeare and every episode of SpongeBob SquarePants. He knows every piece of information. 
Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 30, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows every bird that dies, and he knows the number of hairs on your head. You pull one out, he's right there changing the record. And you know, it's funny because when we talk about knowledge, omniscience, all knowledge, omniscience, Science, knowledge as we call it itself, with a capital S, has declared its hostility to God. That we know so much we don't need God. And it's funny to me and ironic because it was belief in God's omniscience that gave birth to the culture of science in the first place. Faithful Christians back in the Middle Ages, monks in particular, they say, look, God knows everything. God created everything. God is not irrational. God is knowledgeable. Therefore, the world can be understood because we share the image of God and God understands all things. We can understand. And what happened is exactly what Solomon told us happens, that knowledge puffs up. And the more science, knowledge we gained, the more puffed up we became. What do we need God for anyway? Even though if you go back to it, Science is not even possible without a rational, smart God. They knew that there was a plan and a purpose because God was too intelligent for that. Learning can be an act of worship that excites some of you. The rest of you, it makes you yawn and say, oh, please don't make me go back to school. But it's because God is omniscient that learning can be pursuing the Lord. So that's factual knowledge. Second of all is moral knowledge. The Bible very rarely talks about all the facts that God knows without immediately tying it to his wisdom. Wisdom you could call knowledge applied. You could know in your head that a moving car and a stationary person is going to have a very messy collision. Wisdom then says, therefore, don't walk in the road. That's wisdom. And Proverbs 2.6 tells us that the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Solomon tied the search for wisdom to the search for God. And I love Proverbs chapter 2. It's one of my favorite chapters. Because Solomon was wise. He was smart. He understood not just that moral knowledge, but also he was a scientist as well. You read through Ecclesiastes and the stories about his life in Chronicles, for example. And he said, if you want to know wisdom, you've got to know God. Because God has all wisdom. So the smartest guy in the world says, talk to God. He knows more than me. You could call this God's moral knowledge, as we say, which tells us that God's commandments are perfect. We may not always understand why God commands us to do something or not to do something, but we ought to have enough humility to recognize that God is omniscient and we are not, and that he has better insight on what is right and wrong than we do. Paul would write, who are you, O man, to stand in judgment of God? When I worked for the junk removal company, I used to have to organize and coordinate the routes and figure out where all the pickups were going to be. And it used to drive me crazy when I would call somebody and say, hey, I know I wanted you to go here. I actually need you to go here first. And they'd fight with me about it. And I'd explain it to them and they still would fight me on it. And then I would call them up a few minutes later and they still hadn't left because they were trying to coordinate with somebody else to get them to do it. And then I get angry and I explain what's going on and they go, oh yeah, I guess that does make sense. 
And it would drive me nuts because it's like, I'm the one that can see everything. I can see all the jobs that need to be done today. I can see all the GPS trackers. I know what's been said from corporate. I know what the weather, all that stuff. So why are you challenging me on that? And that's a very small example of what we are like to God. God's like, I know everything. Why are you fighting me on this? Psalm 119, verse 130 says, The entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Knowing God will make you wise, the Bible says. For example, God commanded the Israelites many things that seem arbitrary in the law. He told them to avoid eating pork. He told them to remove your waste from the camp. When you eat your meat, drain the blood first. And he said, the lepers have to stay outside the camp. It amazes me even today that there are people that will read the Bible. Isn't that barbaric that they made the lepers stay outside of the city? It's like, do you want people with coronavirus going to Walmart with you? No, they can't be in here. It's exactly the same thing, but they didn't get that back then. They didn't understand where that came from. But you know who did? God did. He said, before you eat anything, drain the blood. Don't eat it with the blood, but the blood tastes so good. Lord's like, it's going to make you sick. It's not clean. <laughs> the Lord's commandments were good. They were wise. They were ahead of their time. In fact, even into the Middle Ages, again, when the plague was sweeping through Europe, the Jews were not getting sick because they were obeying the law. And then all the Gentiles started to think, it must be those Jews that are causing everybody to get sick. That can tell you who was smarter right there. What did Moses know about germs or contagions? He didn't know anything. He just knew what God said. And he trusted his wisdom. And the children of Israel had to take all of those laws on faith for a very long time. Until now we start looking at these things and we go, hey, God was actually pretty smart on this one. 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Has God not earned our trust in moral issues? You know, we want to come and pick all the commandments of God out of the Bible and start evaluating which ones we prefer. But the Lord is, I can just see him like rubbing his forehead up in heaven. Like, haven't you figured this out yet? My commandments are for your good. It's fascinating to me how you can see the, the farthest, most secular, godless people are somehow, now that they've rejected the Lord and the whole sexual liberation thing, they're circling back to all of God's rules again. Have you noticed this? It's, it's weird to watch in a way because you, you see these, I, well, let's pick on the feminists for a minute. And it's like, no, you, you shouldn't be able just to sleep with whoever you want. That, that's not right. And that's insulting to women and it's degrading. And you, you should have to get like some sort of contract in order to make sure that it's okay for you to sleep together. It's not marriage, but something like that. And, you know, if you sleep with more people, you're going to get more diseases. So you really should only be with one. It's like, look where we wound up. We're right back here. And it's really funny because it's those people that are the most godless and hate the Lord the most. We were clamoring. Do you remember this a few years ago? Can I step on some toes? I'm gonna. Remember a few years ago, watching football, you couldn't have the commercials on with the kids in the room? Like, how are they letting all this immodesty on TV? And Christians hollered and wailed about it. And everybody said, you Christians, you're so prudish. You just can't understand. You can't handle the human body and human sexuality. Fast forward a few decades. Now you've got the social justice warriors coming in and saying, hey, that's insulting to women. Get that off TV. And a few, a few minutes later, you can watch football with the kids again. And you go, what happened? 
It's, it's hilarious to me because you declare your independence from God, you live a godless life, and all of a sudden you realize this isn't good. You know what we should do? We should make some rules here. And you find out that God was wise the whole time. Of course, that shouldn't affect us as believers because we don't, the world can do whatever they want. They can go back and forth all day long. We stay right here on the word of God because we trust that the Lord is knowledgeable. It's like we have finally come to understand. Christians are like, the Lord already understood. <laughs> We've been here for a while. So the Lord has moral knowledge. Number three is future knowledge. The Bible teaches that God knows the future. We're going to camp on this one for a while. God offers his ability to foretell the future as evidence that he is the one true God. How do you know I'm the true God? Because I know the future. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10. He said, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Hear this. Declaring the end from the beginning. What does that mean? It means the Lord is spoiling the ending. He knows what's going to happen. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Again, that was Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. The Lord knows the future. He declares the end from the beginning. Now, astrologers and other scam artists, they have mastered the art of what you could call vague prediction. They'll tell you something that is so broad that just about anything can fit into it. You will have a surprise today. Hey, I had a surprise today. And you start, what do you do? You immediately start looking for places to fit the, the pieces in the puzzle. And it's really funny. You can find online. And you ever fall down a YouTube hole? You end up watching like all the same videos over and over again. Watching guys going in and exposing astrologers and fortune tellers is, is something to watch. It's pretty funny. But people buy into that because it's so broad they can make it happen. I bought a bag of fortune cookies on Amazon. Did you know that you could do that? It'll change your life. Bag of 100 fortune cookies. We're having pizza and fortune cookies. And it's hilarious opening those things up because what does it tell you? It gives you something very broad and very generic. And it's like, things are about to turn around. That can mean anything. The Lord doesn't do that. The Lord offers very specific, very clear predictions. And he says, look, what I said was going to happen, happened. One of the most frustrating things when I was in Bible college is having to read all these books and people will say things like this. Now, there had to be at least two Isaiahs writing this book because the second half makes all these predictions about when Israel was going to come back from exile and he gave the name of Cyrus and he gave the name of all these cities and he talked about Greece that was coming next. He couldn't possibly have known that. So there had to be another Isaiah and then someday they were brought together in one book. And you say, is there any evidence of it being split into two pieces? None. But there's no way he could have known. I had to write a whole paper on this one, and it makes me angry even to think about it. That's the thing I didn't like about Bible colleges. You had to go and read all this stuff. It's like, why are we bothering with these people anyway? But they'll say, Daniel, although all the evidence and all the language and all the details are perfect about Babylon and Persia, there's no way it could have been written when it said it was written because Daniel predicted the rise of Greece and the, the sin of Antiochus Epiphanes and he prophesied to the day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the only reason people say that can't be written when it was is because he couldn't possibly have known. Now what that called is assumptions. You assume something to be true and you're not following the evidence where it goes. Very unscientific, you could say. The Lord knows the future. Who else can do that? Nobody. 
Now this brings up some very interesting questions. How exactly does God's omniscience work? There's been three options put forward. Two of them are worth talking about. One of them can go in the garbage. Let's run through one through three. Number one, does God see everything that will happen as in a story already written and he can turn to the page and tell you exactly what it's going to be? Number one. Number two, does God see every possible future and then he executes his sovereignty in order to determine which one he's going to bring about? Or number three, does God not see the future at all? But he's so powerful, he can make the future certain. So even though he doesn't know something's going to happen, he can say it's going to happen because he's powerful enough to make it happen. We can take that third option, ball it up, and throw it in the garbage. The Bible tells us that the Lord knows the future. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Prognosco, he knew beforehand. That's called open theism. It is a very dangerous doctrine. It's kind of fallen out of fashion, and good riddance, I say. But it says that God doesn't know the future. God works within time, just like we do. And he just makes it happen, and he's, he's just that good at it. That is a denial of the text of Scripture. Not only does it get rid of the possibility of prophecy, but it rejects all those descriptions of God that we just read. And that, that is no longer a description of God. That's just boasting on behalf of God. And people, in order to hold this, you have to take obvious, basic biblical words like knowledge and completely redefine them to mean what you want them to mean. And I'd say, this is just my observation, people who are open theists, who believe that, they almost always have two or three other weird things thrown in there. And you talk to them long enough and they'll give you their verses and you kind of knock those down and you really drill down to it. What they'll say is, well, listen, do you really believe that God intentionally made this or that bad thing happen? What we've come to is they can't accept God's sovereignty. They can't accept that God would allow bad things to happen. Unwillingness to face the problem of evil. And we're not going to get into that tonight. We have talked about it before and we'll do it again. But you can't, you can't do that one. So then this is the question. you got those other two options left. And this is what is called middle knowledge. This is a big debate back and forth. Does God have middle knowledge? So Middle knowledge would be all possible futures. So you have the past, you have the present, you have the future, and then you have the middle. <laughs> That's what middle knowledge is. And the Bible does not really answer that question. There are places, and this is where it kind of comes from, where God implies that he was going to do something different, but the choices of men went a different way. Remember when Elisha told Joash, shoot the arrows representing victory over Syria, and he only shot two or three, and he said, you should have shot five or six. But now you will only strike Syria three times. Remember when Jesus told the crowd on Palm Sunday, I wanted to gather you together, but you were not willing. You should have known on this, your day. So we've talked about this before, a few weeks ago, actually. And this debate is very closely tied to the sovereignty of God. <laughs> if you believe that God is a determinist God, meaning every single detail has been foreordained by the Lord, Calvinists would typically fall into that category. They believe that, well, you've maybe heard this argument before, for God to foreknow something is for God to will something. That God can't know anything that doesn't exist because then God would know a lie. I don't think that's necessarily a fair way to put that. It doesn't say that God predestined and foreordained that they're the same thing. They're two different things. God foreknew something and he predestined something. So uh, I, I don't think that you can push it quite that far. 
And then some people say, if God even knew that there was a potential reality, then it had to exist because that's how powerful God's knowledge is. I don't, I don't know about that. It also relates to the question of how do you understand time? Is God bound by time? We say, of course not. And in fact, scientists have sort of understood that time is relative. That's Einstein's thing, right? And also, it, it all seems like time might be more of a physical entity than we ever thought anyway. So if God is outside of anything physical and time actually is physical, I don't understand it as well as I'm probably making myself sound right here, but it is interesting. As far as I can tell, there's no real solid biblical argument, and you really, you're not going to know. <laughs> and I think both points of view have things that make me go, I don't know about that, though. I think there's something interesting about God knowing all possible futures and then actualizing the one that he wants. That's his sovereignty at work. I think that if you say the timeline is immutable and it's the way that God knew it and that's the way it's going to be, I have no problem with that either because I'm not living out here. I'm living inside of it, so I can't tell a difference. That's one of those debates where it's okay to be kind and have coffee and talk about it rather than put out your boxing gloves and let's go to town here. Can we all agree that the future is in God's hands, <laughs> right? And we can discuss how that might work out. And when we get up to heaven, we'll ask him. And the fourth and last area of knowledge that God possesses is personal knowledge. God has knowledge of the human heart. God knows you. God knows you intimately and without a filter. He knows you better than your father or your mother, your wife or your husband, than certainly than I do. He knows you better than you know yourself. We all know this verse, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But you know what the next verse says? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his works, according to the fruit of his doings. We use that verse to contradict Disney theology, right? Trust your heart, follow your heart, be true to your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? But we got to remember the next verse is, the Lord says, I know. Who can know the heart? I know the heart. That's who the Lord is. The word of God is called a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. We don't know what we want in life sometimes. We don't know why we do certain things. We can't even decide what we want for dinner some nights. What do you want to eat? I don't know. You go, are you hungry? I don't know. Are you angry? This is the thing that Catelyn and I laugh about. Right, Tyler, are you sad? I don't know. I might be. Let's make a pros and cons list and let's see if I am. The Lord knows us. Oh, I know myself. Do you though? You ever surprise yourself? How is that even possible? How is it possible to surprise yourself? I didn't know that about myself. Or somebody that you really know well, they just kind of say something in conversation describing you and you go, I'm not like that. And everybody goes, yes, you are. <laughs> the Lord knows us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Giving an account. Have you ever been glad that somebody couldn't see your checking account or your credit card statement. <laughs> All right, we can uh, put that right in the trash can right away. The Lord is going to demand an account of your life. Let's see it. Bring it here. That's terrifying because you know you. But you know what's wonderful? God saw the depths of your heart. He saw the depravity of your soul and he loved you anyway. This is what I grew up hearing all the time, not necessarily in my church, but we say things like this because 
were nice people mostly. God looked at you and he saw your potential. He saw how great you were. He saw you were a diamond in the rough and the Lord picked you up and he said, I'm going to polish that piece of coal until it's a diamond and it's going to be beautiful. Not picking on anybody, but I was a youth pastor for eight years. This is the stuff that's aimed at the teenage girls. They hear this a lot. You are God's princess. You're Rapunzel locked in the tower and God said, I'm going to save that princess. Actually, no. Does the Lord love us? Are we the Lord's, the apple of the Lord's eye? Does the Lord see us as princes and princesses? Yes, that's all true. But you, you can't skip a step. The step is that God looked at you and you were not a diamond in the rough. You were just rough. You were the stuff that you chip away to get at the diamond and you throw into the little bucket that gets dumped out into the pile. That's who you were. You were not the princess. You were the servant down on the bottom scrubbing the stones. Oh yeah, she's up there, Prince Charming. Go on up the stairs. She's waiting for you. That's who you were. And the Lord loved you anyway. Isn't that so much better? Now all of a sudden you don't have any pressure to live up to a certain standard. I've, I've got to earn this. No, you don't. You couldn't. You didn't. The Lord loved you anyway. Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Despite knowing everything about you. There's a band, old Christian band. They're all, I think, pastors now. They're called The Cry with a K. When I was growing up, they were great. And they, they just had a, a knack for writing songs from God's perspective that were just wonderful. And they had one, the chorus was, I know everything about you. Through all the things that you do, still I love you. That's awesome. That's great. God sent his own son to die on a cross for you. Now, knowing that God is omniscient, it's not a point of fear, but it's a point of joy. God knows you better than anyone else without condemnation. He calls you to repentance, of course, but even in that, we see his love. Most of the time, when God calls us to repent from something, it's something we don't want anyway, because sin is icky and gross. Even when you're trapped in something, like addicted people do not enjoy the thing they're addicted to. You know, alcoholics, they don't enjoy alcohol anymore. Drug addicts aren't enjoying this anymore. And you just go on from there. It's a compulsion. And that's what sin is like. It's a compulsion in our hearts. And the Lord sees that. That's why the Lord can be patient and kind with us because he knows our frame. He knows that as humans, we are addicted to sin. That's why he comes at us. Like if, you, if you're just going to yell at an addict to stop shooting up, it's not going to help. You've got to love them and go through the process first. That's why God comes to us and he says, I love you. Don't you see who I am? Yeah, we'll fix that. But I love you so much. I'm going to take care of the penalty of all this stuff so that we can start cleaning it up. It's a wonderful thing to be known. That's one of the best parts of having a deep friendship or being married. You're just known by somebody else. It's intimidating the first few years. Like, oh, yeah, I want to make sure we keep the, the smile on and make sure that we still keep the hair brushed in the morning and all that stuff. But over time, you just you know each other. You ever know a couple that's been married for like 60 years? It's like, look at them go. They know everything about each other. And they're so comfortable and they're so kind and loving to each other. That's how it is with us in the Lord. David prayed in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 is a big, long section about the knowledge of God and how God knows everything. And so David comes to the end and says, Lord, Know me. Learn me. And then lead me the way I'm supposed to go. 
The knowledge of God. It extends from whatever calculations are holding the stars in place down to the thoughts and intents of your heart. The Lord loves you that much.